food used to be medicine. Nowadays, foods cause illness. We look to pills and doctors and sterile waiting rooms to find out why we ache. Food still is medicine. Sometimes eating something heals, and sometimes not eating something is the right prescription. Today's episode is about phytonutrients and antinutrients and the pigment anthocyanin. Added to these are lignans and some other issues. Members of the nightshade family, eggplants, potatoes, tomatoes, and peppers, can cause for some people, which is irritation. The best medicine might be avoiding them, but for some of us, me, that's asking a lot. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 88. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Waddle over to my podcast's page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts, to find all the previous show's show notes pages. Each page has an embedded MP3 player and some podcatcher links, as well as links to the guest's contacts. While on that podcast's page, follow the Culinary Libertarian on the social media tabs at the top of the page, which include Twitter, Instagram, and my Eating Liberty Facebook group. From that podcast's page, click the hyperlinked Support tab to find the Culinary Libertarian affiliate banners for both Tom Wood's Liberty Classroom and Brian McClanahan's McClanahan Academy. Each has content on the founding of America, with courses on the Declaration of Independence, the Constitutions, yes, plural, and more. Liberty Classroom has many more courses on politics, economics, and logic. Schooling from home was a bit of a mess. With the on-the-go content of Liberty Classroom, you can get the education you missed and catch your kids up at the same time. Two more banners on the podcast page are Kiko's Cakes and my Cranky Without Coffee Mug Store. Fulfillment and processing times for mugs are running a bit long, so order Dad's mug soon. And, of course, with that mug of Joe, he's going to want a fine homemade dessert made by you with the help of Kiko. Click the banner to learn how Kiko's video lessons can turn your kitchen into your own pastry shop. Another way you can support the show is with the click of your mouse on your favorite podcatcher with a rating and review of the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Ratings help more people see the show, and that grows the audience. My guest today is Dr. Rima Kitley. Dr. Rima is an herbalist and is board certified in holistic medicine. Dr. Rima earned her bachelor's in biochemistry at the University of California, Los Angeles, and earned her MD at the University of Minnesota, Minneapolis. 
Dadrima has had a family practice for over 20 years, focusing on treating the person, not the symptoms, all of that supported with nutrition and exercise, and sometimes conventional medicine. Dr. Rima, thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Hello, how are you, Dan? Doing very well. So before we get into our episode today, what we want to talk about is things that people don't normally think about, which is pigmentation and pigments and then weird things like phytonutrients and anti-nutrients, and it sounds all science fiction-y. Let's just start with a little bit of a bio from you about you and your training before we get into this. I'm a board-certified family doc in uh, Lufkin, Texas, and um, I'm naturally minded and don't mind using any kind of toolbox I can get, whether it's regular medicine or herbal medicine or nutritional support. Um, So we, we use lots of different things to get people better. My, okay. my my goal is to get people not only band-aided but fixed. We've chit-chatted a little bit online, and I th- I think there's a lot to food being well. It's interesting, and we're going to talk a little bit about how food can both be a healing agent, but for certain groups of people, particular foods are causing the problem, which is. It's kind of an odd thing to think. Now, obviously, if you eat a poisonous mushroom, well, that's fairly plain. Um, what's interesting is that some people find spinach or peanuts or tomatoes gives them problems, and they may not know that's what gives them problems. So this is a general review, uh, an introduction, perhaps, of some of the new words and ideas in nutrition. And I mentioned before, phytonutrients, antinutrients, uh, something called the gut biome, and then specifically the pigment anthocyanin. Okay. So before we get into this pool of nutritional lingo, let's start with a few things that we understand. What is What does nutrition mean? And then what are nutrients before we talk about antinutrients? Foods, you know, are very, very complicated chemical compositions. And so, and our bodies need a lot of these different components for your body to work properly. And um, there are a lot of things in foods that are actually poisonous. And then there are a lot of things that are helpful to us, um, particularly in the plant family, the the fruits and vegetables sorts of things. Um, You know, the... um, Foods, not just carbs or proteins or fats. There's all kinds of vitamins and micronutrients we need to make our bodies run smoothly and efficiently. And I've actually had some time to think about what you were asking me. And my thought was, okay, how are you going to tell what's in the food that's good for you? By the color. Different colors in fruits and vegetables actually indicate different nutrient profiles. So um, I think um, 
we all know about white stuff, you know, white sugar, white flour, white rice. These things have had the color taken out of them because the nutritional components have been taken out of them, you know, mostly for storage purposes. Um, but if you work on eating different colors of food, then you'll actually get a lot of these important health nutrient sorts of things into your foods. Um, and you really don't need a lot of biochemistry to eat healthy if you're looking for colors. So, you know, I don't know, red fruits, vegetables, um, these actually have what they call antioxidants, um, lycopene and anthocyanins. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of red stuff that's good for you. Raspberries, tomatoes, watermelons, cabbages red cabbage, beets, um, strawberries, um, yellow stuff. Um, most of the yellow fruits and vegetables have a lot of something called beta carotene and folic acid. Um, I don't know if you've ever taken a B vitamin, it's yellow and your urine turns out yellow. Well, B vitamins of all kinds are mostly yellow. So carrots, squashes, cantaloupes, yellow things will have more of that sort of stuff. The mitochondria can't make energy without the proper amounts of the B vitamins. Um, when you're looking at green things, you've got vitamin K and the antioxidants like vitamins C and E. Um, and that's got these phytonutrients like lutein and zeaxanthin. Um, I, I think macular degeneration is an example is a white stuff disease. Um, eating too much white stuff, uh, we're finding out that these phytonutrients can help stabilize and even improve your vision for people that have like macular degeneration. So some unprocessed white stuff isn't all that bad, like cauliflower, cucumbers, apples, pears. Um, these actually tend to have the the antioxidant-rich flavonoids um, like quercetin. Um, there's a lot of quercetin in apples and pears. So, you know, you were gonna think you 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 were thinking of looking at eggplant, and the inside of the eggplant is what I call white, the unprocessed white stuff. Well, the purple stuff on the outside of the eggplant has, has um, the flavonoids that are called anthocyanins. And there's a lot of other purple things like purple onions, purple cabbage, and blueberries. Um, and these things are the powerful antioxidants that help reduce your risk of heart disease. When you look at, um, you know, there, there's this big jumping up and down about how bad cholesterol is. It's not. Even LDL cholesterol isn't the bad guy. It's oxidized LDL cholesterol that's bad. So you want antioxidants in your diet to neutralize this and make it harmless. Um, there's purple things have uh, flavonoids and elagic acid, and those actually help decrease inflammation and have been shown to help people fight off and even destroy cancer. 
Um, so the orange, I mean the purple peel of the eggplant, it has has the flavonoids anthocyanins. and anthocyanin. See, I even trip over that <laughs> um, to help you with that part of your nutrition. So. As far as anti-nutrients, I think the biggest anti-nutrients are pesticides and herbicides. I know there's all kinds of other stuffs out there, but I think that, you know, if you're not eating organic stuff, then it's sucking out the good part or making or damaging much more than any individual things about your foods. Um, I don't know if you've ever eaten a homegrown organic carrot that's grown just strictly in compost it's nothing like what you can get at the grocery store so i'm a very big organic food proponent um even if the farmers are cheating sometimes you know we vote with our debit cards so if you buy more organic they're going to get the idea that that's what they need to grow so Anyway, um, I know, Dan, you, add, you asked me about eggplant, and it's a beautiful purple color. But I haven't eaten nightshades in over 10 years. Um, in spite of its beauty, I'm one of these people who can't process the poisonous alkaloids in nightshades. So, And alkaloids are what pro protect the plant from this insect um, attack. So 10 or so years ago, I, I had a garden that had 20 different varieties of heirloom cherry tomatoes. And I had red ones and yellow ones and orange ones and purple ones. I had probably 150 feet times 10 of cherry tomatoes. And uh, the day my, I had tears rolling down my cheeks that my hips hurt walking to the garden, um, I looked at that beautiful handful of colors and threw them down in the bucket. I was tired of hurting. Um, so I've helped a lot of people get over the fact that this wonderful food, some, for some people, really isn't all that good for you. Um, I ended up filling up eight big buckets with cherry tomatoes and calling up my neighbor and saying, come get them. And she canned them. She had a, I haven't had any nightshades since, none. We get a lot of information. We get a lot of overload of information between all different kinds of diets and the internet ads. Donate these five foods and the keto folks. And there's, it's tough to know what to do. And if you just go by the simplest thing, eat as whole food as you can. So eat the whole tomato as opposed to the tomato juice. Right. Eat the apple, not the apple juice or the applesauce. It's that seems like a really good place to start, and I advocate that. But now you've mentioned, and I know that our friend Jimmy Clegg has also talked about, uh, there is a, I don't know if it's a large portion of people, but there is a population of people, kind of like you, who find these particular foods, tomatoes, potatoes, eggplants, peppers, cause maybe more problems than they fix. And that's partly what we're talking about a little bit just to see if uh, how how do we know what's going on and that's probably a whole other show but let's 
it, it's just the first the observation is that some some of these foods can cause harm, which is kind of sad because, man, I love a good tomato, and fortunately, that's not a problem yet. Uh, you had mentioned about the various levels of colors in the purple foods. And so take, say, an eggplant or a red onion, which is very, very purple, compared to, say, a strawberry, which is not very purple. It's, is red. it's there... more red than it's more red than purple. It's more red than purple. So is does that color give some indication to the quantity of uh, of anthocyanin, which I guess would then mean the quantity of flavonoids in that food? The color has more to do with the variety of different things in it. So uh, the purple foods may have some overlap, but they really have a bunch of different kinds of anthocyanins. To th that is what makes the color. So if you're doing a variety of colors, you will get a variety of antioxidants and um, and phytonutrients. Um, it's much more complex than just leucopene or anthocyanin. I mean, there's hundreds of them. These are just the ones that people have kind of honed in on. Um, when I was doing my herbal medicine course, I was absolutely jaw dropped over the various different complex chemicals that were in the foods that they were testing for different medicinal properties or whatever. So, you know, if you try to focus on one little bitty, you know, nutrient, it's not going to work because they're just the food is just too complex and so is the medicine and in fact let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food you know um hippocrates said that thousands of years ago <laughs> i've talked to with jimmy a couple of times i've talked with biochemists a couple of times and just in diet in general i think one of the pieces of wisdom to take away from eating in general is is there's a couple of things. One, the food is very complex in the compounds that it offers. Correct. The human body is very complex in how it handles and responds to these things. So to think that adding or omitting a single thing is the linchpin to losing weight and turning healthy and being Jack LaLanne living to 900 years old. <laughs> well, it makes great TV and it sells lots of things, but I think there's folly uh, about such things. And also you have to look at the individual people. You know, some people really do better as carnivores and some people really do better as mostly vegetarian. Um, the metabolic things are really, you know, the, meta, the, the chemistry of each person and how they handle the different foods are very different. One of the things I wanted to get back to was the, you know, the nightshade thing and how do you decide if it's a problem or not. The people that have what I call screaming body pain out of proportion to what you physically see a lot of times are intolerant to nightshades. Um, but the things is that it's really not an allergy, it's a toxicity reaction. And, and the metabolic 
uh, I'm thinking that my metabolism just plain old doesn't tolerate the poison in it. The toxicity also takes time to build up and time to come down. You know, when you're allergic to something, you know, an hour or two later, you turn beet red or start coughing or get a rash or whatever, or maybe the next day. This is something that builds up over um, weeks and months. When I quit eating nightshades, it took me almost two months for the inflammation in my body and particularly my hips to go away. So it it was, you know, it, it's a process. It's not instant. I have a saying that I tell people, I feel bad, what did I eat? So you have to go back and look at what it is that you're eating for you. I once had a lady lose 47 pounds in one month stopping eating nightshades. And that was my jaw-dropping sort of um, uh, jolt about nightshades to begin with. She was um, Hispanic and she was the middle child of three sisters and she had exactly the same meal as everybody else. Mom was a single parent. She got fed what everybody else did. By 12 years old, she was twice the size of her sisters. By the time she graduated high school, she was over 200 pounds. And when I met her, she was 428 pounds at 28 years old. And I worked with her and worked with her and worked with her for five months. And um, she was frustrated. She was only losing three pounds a month. She, I said, just, just stick to it. I was doing kind of this, um, you know, once a week you have a free day and the rest of the time you kind of limit all your allergens and mostly do, you know, low carb kind of a diet at, back then. This was 20 years ago. And she um, one day came in in a full blown asthma attack. And, I, and she'd never had asthma before in her life. And I said, it's one o'clock, what'd you eat? And she said, a baked potato. I said, you mean to tell me you had a plain baked potato? What'd you put on it? No, nothing, you know, nothing, salt, nothing. Okay. So I said, I bet you're allergic to nightshades. And I told her what they were. She lost 47 pounds because she was so swollen and carrying around all this fluid. And I've had probably at least a dozen people that have lost 20 or 30 pounds in a month stopping eating nightshades. The people that drop a lot of weight very quickly usually are sensitive to whatever it is they quit eating when they went on this diet, which is something most people don't realize. Um, you know, there's a metabolism issue and then there's sensitivities and all that stuff. So. Anyway. Well, no, that's that's impressive. That that needs one of those disclaimers. Results aren't typical. <laughs> yeah. If so, I just wanted to, real quickly two things. Uh, we had because I found them in my store, uh, Thai eggplant, which have no purple in the skin at all. But I'm assuming since they are in the nightshade family, they have mostly what eggplant has. But my question would be, so if it doesn't have purple, does that mean there's no anthocyanins? And if it does have purple, and I peel the peel off the eggplant, because frankly, I'm going to make somebody mad about this. I hate the peel. <laughs> I hate it. I love eggplant. I like it in I like it many ways, but I can't stand the peel. 
So if I take the peel off, which obviously is the majority of the color, is there any, does, does anthocyanin or flavonoids remain in the flesh of the eggplant? The flesh of the eggplant has much, much, much less compared to the peel. Also, well, that makes sense. Um, so you're losing all the anthocyanins by taking the peel off, or most well, of them. What, what I'm what I'm losing in anthocyanins, I'm gaining in gustatory pleasure and mouthfeel pleasure. And <laughs> I call it and, unprocessed white stuff. That's got some quercetin and fiber and maybe some other antioxidants. You know, good stuff. Um, I, know, I was reading. I re was reading somewhere that they said there are varieties that don't have solanine in them. Solanine is the poison really? in nightshades. There are varieties of eggplant that don't have it. And apparently it's a green color on the inside of the peel. So if the peel, if you peel it off, very carefully and you've got a greenish color underneath it's got some solanine in it if it doesn't have the green color it doesn't have solanine in it interesting well it's it's like a potato if it's exposed to sun correct. it gets green under the skin correct do the do they cook out so if i cook my red onions get a good caramel on them am i am i destroying something in the cooking am i better off having the red onions raw for the pigment, or is this, you know, and this presents one of those problems where the the focus on one particular compound at the exclusion of the rest, maybe what we're giving and getting works out to a balance. I don't know. But does anthocyanin cook out? I don't know if anthocyanin cooks out. I do know that we as a race of humans started to be able to expand out when we started cooking our food. The cooking makes a lot of nutrients much more available. So um, as uh, something like grains, grains have a lot of anti-nutrients in them, but if you soak them, and cook them well, then you get actually more nutritional value than less of some of this other stuff. Now, in terms of the colorful antioxidants and flavonoids and all that stuff, I really don't know the answer to that. Sorry. That's all right. All right. I do want to get into phytonutrients and the Easy for me to say. I want to get into... <laughs> Tongue tripping. I do want to get into phytonutrients and anti-nutrients, but before I do that, let's take a moment out for a word from my affiliate. Folks, summer is effectively here. That means steaks on the grill and a fine red wine. Maybe you are more the al fresco brunch type, and you prefer a fabulous sangria. California Wine Club is the premier wine club featuring small artisan vineyards you won't find in stores. California Wine Club subscriptions offer benefits which include Uncorked, the California Wine Club Guide to Their Wines, a personal wine consultant, $1 shipping, and more. Subscription or gift packages cover all budgets. Use my affiliate link 
culinarylibertarian.com slash CAWineMain to learn more about the Internet's top wine subscription club. Click culinarylibertarian.com slash CAWineMain to subscribe today. Pick your wine preferences and stock up for a superb summer. That's culinarylibertarian.com slash CAWineMain or Click the banner on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 88. Now, let's get back into the show. Okay, Rima, I want to talk about phytonutrients and antinutrients, and I know you had just mentioned them as something that's part of wheat, but additionally as external things in the form of pesticides. So excluding what man would add to a crop, what is an antinutrient? Does it exist naturally in, say, a wheat grain? And what is that? Yeah, it's, it's compounds that are binding things up. You have to break something down to release the nutrients, any of the nutrients. So um, the, the plant grows and has all this stuff in amongst the cellulose and all that stuff. If it's bound up in the complex uh, carbohydrates and cellulose, you're not going to get as much of it. That's why chewing it up carefully and cooking it releases some of that stuff. But cooking it too much will release it, and that's a food chemist problem. Right. So anti-nutrients and phyto, and so let's let's first work on defining the other term. What is a phytonutrient? What does that mean? That means um, a, something that comes from a plant. Phyto means plant. So um, you know uh, things um, that come from the plant. Um, and actually anti-nutrients are things that interfere with absorption of the minerals. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember phytic acid is one of them, uh, that will bind things up, oxalic acid, that kind of stuff. So can an anti-nutrient be a phytonutrient or are they mutually exclusive? There's probably some overlap, but most anti-nutrients are separate from phytonutrients. Okay, I, mean, I just I think phytonutrients is more of a practical term for things that are nutritional that come from a plant. So an anti-nutrient means that it's something that um, is interfering with you absorbing the good stuff. I, I think it's more of a practical um, term. So an anti-nutrient is something that it's part of the food and there's nothing we can do to make it not be there. So let's talk about a stalk of wheat that's turned into, let's say we're going to grind our own flour. So I know the commercial flour is that just you know poisoned white stuff. Let's say we have our little grain master thingy. I'm not, I invented the name. I don't know if grain master exists. And we're going to mill our own flour from from grain or amaranth or um, uh, or, uh, spelt. And inside that kernel, 
there's phytonutrients and micronutrients, and it is a macronutrient because it's a carb, and there's antinutrients. So there's nothing we can do to get rid of them as it is, but can are they, by their term, an anti does sound like it's something we don't want. Does that mean we don't want that, that we need to find a way to mitigate it somehow or find positive nutrients to counteract that? Well, the way they're using the term anti-nutrient means that it's binding up what you, it's binding up the good stuff. It's sort of like a clam over the good stuff inside the shell. So you have to break the shell to get the good stuff on the inside. Okay. And so, you know, they're using it, you know, like oxalic acid and phytic acid and things like that. Um, I, those are good ones or bad ones? Those are the bad ones. Okay. Um, well, they're not all bad, but basically they're more or less bad. The first time I ever heard about anything anti-nutrient was listening to Sally Fallon um, talk about her nutritional stuff and the whole Weston A. Price. That was an introduction uh, for me. Um, I was at a Texas Farmers and Gardeners uh, meeting, and I was one of the people that was had a booth and this guy passes by on a Saturday and says, Oh, you got to see here, Sally Fallon. I said, who or what is Sally Fallon? And well, she's doing the thing, you know, and so this is a four day conference. I'm there Saturday afternoon, Sunday, I'm going home. And she's eight to 12 on Sunday morning. Uh, I wanted to go. I, I said, okay, I'll stop by and then go home. I sat down and I didn't budge for four hours. Absolutely fascinating. And what she talks about is the old way that grains in particular were processed by various cultures. They take corn and soak it or leave it out for two weeks. They'd stay, take grains or legumes and stick them in the river getting washed for two weeks. That's how they got rid of the things that were anti-nutrient that bound up the good stuff on the inside of the clamshell, if you will. And so... It's like like um, soaking corn in alkali to remove the husk. That's what those grits are technically supposed to be white because they're how many grits? Correct. It's the, uh, it's, it's the old way of cooking it so that you know and then when you make the bread you leave it out for two weeks before you eat it so it's it's not at all what we've done in our culture um but the old cultures used to do that because that's what sustained them and that's how they knew it worked for them you know i was talking with uh, the teacher the culinary teacher and cookbook author peter reinhardt about sourdough breads yeah and a real a proper not this not the stuff you buy in the store because that's all just chemicals a proper sourdough bread it doesn't i can't speak for everybody but in general the people who have gluten problems generally don't have problems with sourdough bread because so much has transformed 
one, you should be using whole grains anyway, but you're so many things are going on chemically inside there that the bad stuff is being broken down. And now you get, I mean, real good sourdough bread makes you feel better and it tastes amazing. Well, you have to make it. You well, can't buy it. I actually tried that theory out. After 15 years of being gluten-free, some one of my friends convinced me that if I made sourdough bread out of einkorn wheat, um, it would it would work. I was making the sourdough bread and I was fermenting it and sitting it. It was took you know a week long process. By the time yes. you made this this old-fashioned sourdough bread. I loved it. Um, my body uh, flared up, and it took me almost a year to settle it down again. Well, I'm okay. Well, and so my point stands that I can't speak for everybody. And no, it's, you it, can't. It, you it can't. May not be true for all, you but promote it as a as a celiacs can eat it. No. Well, I wouldn't dare say that, but for for people who can, it's worth making your own sourdough bread. Yes. It's it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Isn't it a problem when you got somebody who's so allergic to everything? Fortunately, I I don't have, and as far as I know, my kids and my wife don't have food allergies. Although my wife recently has discovered that there might be a different kind of an issue. Um, I worked many years ago just to illustrate the point uh, with a young cook who was the most severe celiac reaction I've ever seen. So the point is that if she ate a French fried potato, a bad example, but something that's gluten-free, out of the fryer that had previously fried something breaded, Yep. the amount of gluten left in that French fry from that fryer would have her in the bathroom in half an hour vomiting because she was extraordinarily sensitive. Yep. So that's, I, I think that's probably an extreme, but it illustrates the point that you just need, if you've got it, you've got it. Yes. Um, so we mentioned this, you, your tomato, I'm so sad for you about the tomato problem, but I'm glad your hips are better. But <laughs> I like them. I mean, I really do like them. Yeah. So I mentioned my, my wife's thing. So she recently went to see the doctor because um, we all eat the same stuff mostly, but I don't, I, I, I don't buy a lot of things. As a cook, I make much of it. Now, I buy some things for commercial because they've mastered consistency. So I buy commercial ketchup. I can't stand the sugar in there, but I'm not making my own ketchup. I still want to make my own mayonnaise, but for now, I'm buying commercial mayonnaise. But that's, that's probably fine because we're not sick about it. But the person she went and saw said she has an autoimmune disease called Hashimoto's. Now, I mentioned that to you. Yes. Uh, and this particular uh, health provider identifies specifically gluten, potatoes, and dairy as things to exclude, which <laughs> my wife is, you know, a big potato chip and French fry fan, so that's a real challenge. Um, bread, probably okay, but... These are this is a big change, and you didn't necessarily agree with that. I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but my take was you didn't necessarily agree with this person's uh, rationale for exclusion. Um, 
for people who have, now this is a whole other episode, maybe even a whole book, but for people who have issues like Hashimoto's, and I'm not convinced that, I don't know, I, I have my own skepticism, but that's that's immaterial here. Is is this person right? Should she be avoiding gluten and dairy and potatoes? The um, the TPO antibodies um, uh, uh, can be at various levels. Um, over the years, I have found that people that have really high TPO antibodies with the really severe Hashimoto's universally do well getting rid of gluten. That Tell me what TPO antibodies means. Uh, antithyroid peroxidase antibodies. Um, the antithyroid peroxidase antibodies are basically what makes you be labeled Hashimoto's. The people with low level antibodies generally aren't that as sensitive to the um, to the foods and elimination diet things. The ones with the really high TPO antibodies like, you know, over 300, I've seen them as high as a thousand, even higher. The, the really high antibody folks almost universally do better getting off gluten. I haven't found as much of the correlation with the dairy and or the nightshades. Um, I, when I have someone who's not doing well, I tend to recommend some sort of um, autoimmune paleo diet. So you're getting rid of the high allergenic, high inflammatory foods and going back to basic stuff, meats and uh, fruits and vegetables, getting rid of most of the grains, legumes, dairy, nightshades. Um, those are actually the big ones. Um, the, um, the part about the thyroid though, you don't, you also have to support it. You have to let the thyroid do what it's supposed to do. And to be able to work properly, the thyroid needs adequate vitamin D, needs um, iodine, selenium. Um, I've used some anti-inflammatory type of herbal stuff, particularly a mushroom called cordyceps to try to decrease the inflammation. Um, and um, there are some supportive herbs, but most of the formulas out there for supporting the thyroid um, have ashwagandha in them. And ashwagandha is an Ayurvedic herb that's actually a nightshade. So I have mixed feelings about that. But a lot of times just adding iodine and selenium and adequate vitamin D levels um, will help the thyroid and, and some anti-inflammatory um, herbal support, either the cordyceps or like um, uh, curcumin, uh, turmeric, will a lot of times uh, bring the inflammation down. My premise has always been there's absolutely no earthly reason for your body to attack itself. It's got to have a trigger. Why is it attacking the thyroid? What's the trigger? And that's what you try to work on.
I, I did because I was curious. I wrote a blog post about salt and was, in spite of myself being a cook for 30 years, a little stunned to find out that I knew next to nothing about salt. So I've gotten rid of the white salt entirely. I use it for one thing only, which is to put into the water when I boil vegetables, when I boil pasta. It's just plain, boring white salt. Everything else is, is some form of either Himalayan salt or um, a, a variety of different sea salts um, that are everything included, which has all those 80 plus micronutrients. And I think we're better off for it. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. The only way I use the regular salt is if I'm brining a turkey for Thanksgiving. <laughs> See, and that would be the case too. If I'm if I'm doing something like that where there's going to be more done afterward, then right. the cheap salt's fine. I don't want to spend. I don't want to put three cups of you know expensive salt there because that's just going down the drain. Right. So, okay. Uh, I want to shift gears here just a little bit. Uh, and ask you a couple of kind of fun little questions. Okay. Of the five flavors, sweet, salty, bitter, sour, and umami, which one do you enjoy the most? Well, if you talk to a chef, you have to really make really good food. You need all of them. And the expansion of your palate by adding more of them, um, you know, is it, it is amazing. Um, uh, we raise our own lamb, and I kind of go with that, um, you know, when I'm treating lamb. So I put sweet cherry juice, uh, sour um, uh, vinegar, um, some sort of bitter, you know, either black pepper, white pepper, or um, I'll use quite a bit of allspice. Um, so, you know, you, uh, then rosemary or whatever, but you're adding in the different umamis. I'll use coconut, um, coconut, uh, what is that? Coconut soy, soy substitute. Um, I don't know what that is. Uh, coconut aminos. I'll put that in there as the umami part of it. Um, I, I have a sweet tooth, just like everybody else, but you know. <laughs> Interestingly, not everybody does, but I have a spectacular sweet tooth. <laughs> well, I have a sweet tooth, but my sweet tooth is usually fruit. Um, you know, I've got oh, apricots and uh, blueberries. I eat blueberries and strawberries very frequently, cherries. Um, I make a slushy with, uh, I put frozen blueberries and pecans and a little bit of um, um, some juice either pour it off a, you know, something, pear juice, something, you know, something to make it fluid. Man, that's a good slushy. <laughs> mm. What's your favorite food? Um, my favorite food, I don't know that I have a favorite food. I like a lot of different things. Um, I eat mostly um, whole foods. Um, I don't buy hardly anything packaged or processed, be partly because I'm so sensitive to things. 
So I'm the one where if you eat a grain off the counter, um, I'll get sick of a gluten. I'll get sick for a month, you know, that kind of person. <laughs> right. So things are, you know, I don't eat other people's food at all. <laughs> um, you know, I don't, I don't eat out. I don't, you know, Thanksgiving dinner with my family is, is a big deal because we know we can't go anywhere else, but it's also, okay, mom can't have rosemary or garlic or onions, and I can't have this, this, and this, and my daughter can't have this, this, and this, and my granddaughter is allergic to that and that. And so we actually make a dinner where, okay, everybody can eat this, but only this, these people can eat this. And <laughs> that's my life. It's been like that for years. So um, I eat, you know, yesterday for lunch, I had sardines and olive oil, strawberries and, and olives. That was my lunch. That's an interesting lunch. <laughs> oh, and pickles. <laughs> but only the certain type of pickles. <laughs> so. What's your least favorite food? Things that are bitter. Um, I am exquisitely sensitive, and I think it's genetic because my mom and my daughter have the same thing. We absolutely... Bitter things, you know, I need just a very teeny amount or else it's overwhelming and painful. Somebody will eat a jalapeno pepper. If I got a drop on my tongue, I would be sick from it. Um, so I'm extremely sensitive to bitter, bitter things. And I, I'm very, very judicious when I use it. I like a little bit of bitter, but it's you know, my level of bitter, which is probably 10 times or 20 times less than somebody else's. It's funny because I love bitter. Yeah. <laughs> what gets you excited? A garden. A beautiful garden. What turns you off? Stupidity in people. What sound do you love? Music, piano. My absolute favorite music is piano music. Anything that soothes. If I'm all wound up and all stressed out, I turn on some piano music. I like Pandora, and I've got a selection that I've collected. Um, but it has to be the acoustical piano and even the acoustical guitar. If it's the synthetic piano the electronic pianos i don't like it as well and it's not as relaxing and it's not as beautiful for me what sound do you hate i i, I can't think of anything right now okay what is your favorite food indulgence my favorite food indulgence yes um coconut bliss ice cream <laughs> Ooh, okay, very good. There's there's a bunch of really good flavors of those. <laughs> yeah. Um, in this realm of learning, in this this new thing, it's almost like a like a Star Trek or a uh, 
Back to the Future, Anti-Nutrient and Nutrients and, you know, the Space-Time Continuum. And we're going to, it's like, uh, Scotty, I can't, you know, whatever. So if we have nutrients and anti-nutrients mixed, we're not going to have an explosion, I hope. But is there a book or books that you know of for people interested in starting to learn about how the different elements, compounds perhaps is the better word, in produce are either helpful or harmful to them and maybe they didn't know that's what's causing these problems? Is there a place for them to start as a basics? I really liked Sally Fallon's Nourishing Traditions. I learned more from that than anything else in terms of how to process the grains and soak them and how to do all that. I think she's she's done some really beautiful stuff. For people that are multi-allergic, uh, Mickey Trescott has done this autoimmune paleo cookbook and um, she's got a website and all kinds of other stuff. She's got a new book out, which I haven't seen, but, um, that's been my try and elimination diet and see how you do. And she does some really good explanations of the foods, but she's got a whole bunch of really good recipes on things that you wouldn't think about eating. Um, People don't know how to cook in our world anymore. They grew up on McDonald's and all that stuff. So um, when I'm trying to get people to work on their health, a lot of times you're doing a lot of, you know, how are you going to do this? Because they're totally overwhelmed with just the idea of buying, you know, going to the produce section of the grocery store, you know, walk in, turn right, pick up your fruits and your vegetables, walk along the back, pick up your meats and your eggs and walk down the frozen food aisle and pick up some more vegetables concept of eating, you know, and leave the rest of the store alone. So it's really overwhelming for some people, for a lot of people. You know, I'm. it's overwhelming for me sometimes. And one of my frustrations, and you're right about that, there's, there's a lot of people think potatoes, mashed potatoes comes in a box. What do you mean it doesn't? Of course it does. Look, it's right there. <laughs> Um, you know, garden, garden fresh, of course, tastes better no matter what, even if it's a tomato or a zucchini or a yellow squash or a spaghetti squash Absolutely. picked five minutes ago. It, I, I just remember years ago, I was invited to a friend's house. We were cooks at a, uh, country club in North Carolina and he said, I yeah, come over for dinner. So he was growing. Crookneck squash. Now, normally, if you get crookneck squash from the store, you're better off eating the green styrofoam container because it's probably <laughs> going to have more flavor and might actually have more nutrition. Well, this was stuff he had just picked. So it, it was firm. And it, my, I was like, wow, this is amazing. I'd forgotten that fresh produce actually has flavors because <laughs> no one thinks yellow squash, it doesn't have flavor because the stuff you get in the store is. Well, it may be grown for flavorlessness, but it's not helped by 10 days later. Right. So I, th this is not a, this is a problem everyone has. And leaving the middle of the store alone is a hard thing to do. Um, it's just because you know, that's where the bulk, no kidding. That's, that's not I mean to make a grocery joke about the bulk section, but that's where the majority of stuff is. Right. Because 
that's where, you know, I would like to make my own mayonnaise, but that's hard to do. It's really hard to do. Actually, it's not that hard. It really is not that hard. No, making the mayonnaise alone isn't hard by itself. It's making your own mayonnaise, making all of your own salad dressings, making... Uh, I'm making my own sour cream now. I, may, I want to make my own yogurt. Getting into doing all these things takes takes planning. It takes time. It takes doing. It takes kitchen space. And if you're making mayonnaise and doing these other things, you're not doing something else. Right. One of the things that I've all I've learned over the years since I kind of started working with much more with Whole Foods when my daughter was five years old and I was in medical school. And she literally had a headache or a stomachache every single day for a year. And I took her to four different doctors. And the first three told me there was nothing wrong with her. And the fourth one told me she's making it up. At which point I quit taking her to doctors because I knew she wasn't making it up. And that's when I came across this book called Tracking Down Hidden Food Allergies. And that's where we, we went on this caveman diet elimination and ended up finding that we were sensitive to, both of us were, to corn and dairy. I wish at the time I'd figured out it was really wheat and dairy, but at the time I couldn't buy a loaf of bread without milk powder or corn syrup in it. So I ended up starting to learn to cook. And the key to all that is making the pieces and having them ready. You know, you make, you know, a turkey and then you take a bunch of the turkey and in smaller packages, chop it up and freeze it in Ziplocs or, you know, one of these uh, air suck out the air kind of machines and um, you stick them in the freezer. So one day when you're coming home tired and you got nothing to do. You, you know, you, you got nothing to eat. You grab the stuff out of the freezer, stick it in water to defrost it, make some vegetables, you know, that you happen to have, and you can start putting things together. So having pieces of things ready to go really makes a difference. I keep a stock of frozen vegetables in the freezer for when I'm too, you know, when I'm too busy, lazy, ran out of the good stuff kind of stuff then I can use things that are kind of half done, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. That's Yeah, I agree with that. I've got a freezer full of Talenti containers of various stocks. They have turkey and beef and chicken stock in the freezer. Correct. Perfect. I've got, I've just got because I... 20, uh, 20 turkey chicken uh, stock. Uh, glass jars. I I put them in the uh, in the quart canning jars, and right. and I don't I don't can it. I just kind of put it in there and freeze it, so I don't have to mess with the canning part of it. Um, but I got lots of freezers, so yeah, being ready, well, having the pieces, then you can start making stuff. Well, that's that's true, and that's probably a whole the <laughs> whole other episode. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate your time today. This is uh, this is an, a, a big topic, and I just I wanted to just sort of get the basics and give people some understanding that there's more going on with the food than maybe they knew, and that there's a way to 
learn about what's making them feel poorly if that's actually happening and how to fix the problem by a not eating it or first identifying what it is and and sometimes it's a sad thing to find out because you know potato chips man oh man those things are good they taste good I know. french fries taste good I know, but you can make sweet potato french fries and they're not nightshade. Oh, that's what I wanted to ask you. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I want to use those. And I thought, I don't know. So from a autoimmune problem that maybe my wife does or doesn't have, probably has because there's a thyroid issue related there. If we increase our sweet potato consumption, obviously with you know, the watchword for everything is moderation, is as far as that goes, she's in the clear. Well, sweet potatoes are in the morning glory family, so they're not nightshades. And actually, there's several different varieties of sweet potatoes. There's a Japanese sweet potato that's got a, a purpley outside and it's got a white inside, not like the orange ones. And that one, you could almost get away with making French fries um, with that taste like, honest, they taste like French fries. They're, they're not as sweet as the orange uh, sweet potatoes, and they're really good. So I make those frequently. I always have some available. Well, I'll look for those. I my. My little teeny town, to my great surprise, had three different kinds of eggplants. They had, you know, the regular common purple ones and the Thai ones and the Japanese ones, which I was amazed. And they even had okra, which we bought. <laughs> and okra, in this part of Oregon, I don't, you say okra to somebody and they look at you like, what? Yeah, okra is, so. I grew up in Southern California. Okra is not my favorite food. And I, in spite of the fact that I'm in Southeast Texas, I just, I just can't. <laughs> oh, well, my daughters and I, we, we make fried okra and they love it. They get ex <laughs> children exclaiming in glee, okra, okra, we had okra. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. One last thing. How can people find or follow you? Do you have a Facebook account or I know you've got a webpage, which I will put the link for the webpage on today's show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 88. Uh, is there some other way they can follow you? Yeah, I, I have a Facebook. Uh, I, I actually have quite a, a blog that I've been working on um, for several years now on Facebook. And if you look up Dr. Rima Kitley, um, it pops up. And then my office website is uh, drrima.com. Cool. Well, I will put both of those links on the show notes page, and I'll find the book by Sally Fallon and add that also to the show notes page. And thank you so much for your time this, well, evening for you, afternoon for me. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Well, I do too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll have the links on the show notes page libertarian.com slash 88, as well as Dr. Rima's Facebook blog page link and the link to her website. I mentioned at the opening of the episode about the Eating Liberty Facebook group. 
Come join us and share your Father's Day bounty. And speaking of bounty, show off your morels or bolets or rams or fiddleheads or rock bass or whatever you've got. Love to see what you're finding early in this springtime. Have a good week and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.